Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to hang out a little bit, mostly in chapter 8 and a little bit um, in chapter 9 as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. We've, of course, read through 1 Corinthians. Um, now we're reading through 2 Corinthians. We will almost finish 2 Corinthians this week, at least if you're reading at the same pace that I am. Uh, I think we actually close it out at the beginning of next week, and then I think we jump into the Gospel of Mark, and so uh, lots of good discussions that are ahead of us. But for now, um, we are still in the chaos and the craziness of the church in Corinth. So 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to look at um, an, an interesting topic that, to be honest, is not always one of my favorites to discuss uh, but I think it's certainly interesting and worth our time together um, in the Word tonight. I read a story this week as I was preparing um, to, to share from uh, this text. It was about a boy who had a bag of marbles and proposed a trade with a girl who had a bag of candy. Now, let me just say, I don't think this is a true story, but somewhere out there was a boy with a bag of marbles trading a girl with a bag of candy. As the boy approached and offered uh, his, his trade, the girl gladly agreed to make the exchange. But as the boy got out his marbles, he realized that he couldn't bear to part with some of those precious marbles. Rather, dishonestly, he took three of his best marbles and hid them under his pillow. The boy and the girl then made the trade, and the girl never knew he had cheated her. But that night, while the girl lied fast asleep, the boy couldn't. He was wide awake, pondering a question that continued to nag at him. Here was his question. I wonder if she kept her best candy too. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever made a trade like this one. Hopefully, you've never cheated someone out of a deal that you've made. However, uh, have you ever kept something back from God? right? It's the logical connection between holding things back. Think about this simple truth. God hasn't kept his best from us, so why do we keep our best from him? Like, Let that settle for a moment. God doesn't keep his best from us. Why is it that we feel like we can keep our best from him. Now, maybe this isn't always the case. Maybe there have been a lot of situations where you've given God everything, or at least you've given him uh, your, your all in certain situations, but have you always? Do you always? Or can you think about things in your life that you know you're holding back? Things you know you could be using more for God than you are currently today. Are there things that God wants you to be more generous with? Are there ways He wants you to give so that others can gain? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul addresses with the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8-9. through He really helps them to understand some principles about generosity, some principles about giving, which really he's not helping them as much as he's helping us Tonight, And so as I was studying through chapters 8 and 9, I highlighted a few of these principles that I wanted to share tonight, um, mostly from me talking, I will not uh, deny that, but I hope in your mind at least, we will have an open dialogue and discussion 
about what Paul writes about to the church at Corinth, mainly because I don't just think he was writing to that church. I think he was writing to our church. Also, I don't think it's a coincidence that God would have us reading things like this as we're considering what he might have for us in the future and what it will take to get there. So I want us to think a little bit about some principles of giving and really, more specifically, some principles about generosity. Let me show you a couple of them. If you have your outline, this is where we will jump in. Here's number one. Generosity is a reflection of God's grace in our lives. Generosity on our part is a reflection of God's grace in our lives. Let's jump in. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Let's just read verse number 1 and I'll help paint this picture. Here's what Paul writes. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, what I think is interesting is as he embarks on this discussion about giving and about generosity, it really begins with something deeper than that. It really begins with the grace of God in their lives. Now, the context of what Paul's writing has to do with a collection that's specifically being taken up for the church in Jerusalem. Now, apparently, according to the context in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians and even in other parts of the New Testament, the church in Jerusalem had fallen on some hard times and there were many people in their community and in their church that were in need. So other churches, including Macedonia and Corinth, were giving to help them in this time of need. Now, what's interesting about this collection to me is that some believe Paul was passionate about the poverty of the Jerusalem church because he had caused a lot of the poverty for the Jerusalem church. You said, Danny, what do you mean? Paul didn't steal anything, didn't take anything from anybody. He wasn't abusing any, any, anything like that. What, what do you mean he's the cause of a lot of the poverty for the Jerusalem church? Well, many scholars believe that Paul's so passionate about a collection for Jerusalem because in his persecution of the church, he left behind many orphans and many widows that were now left for the church to care for. Those homeless on the street, those begging for food, those trying to figure out how they were going to make it to the next day were very likely a part of the persecution, which maybe not directly from Paul, but indirectly was launched into the world by this apostle. Could be that he carried that weight and that guilt and that shame every single day. So you say, Danny, why would he care about taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem? Well, because their brokenness and their poverty was probably directly related to his sinfulness. Now imagine that weight. They say, Danny, can we prove that? No. But is it likely that he felt this way? Absolutely. Knowing the persecution that he launched, knowing what he did to Christians before he became one, knowing what his life was like before Jesus, I can only imagine that as he saw those faces, as he thought about those children, those women, as he thought about those families that were left with nothing, all he could think about was his past life and what he had did before he met Christ. Now, I'm not saying he should live in that guilt and that shame. We all have moments of what it was like before we knew Jesus. As a matter of fact, many of us have moments even after Jesus that are shameful and we're guilty of. I'm not saying he should live in that, but I'm saying the passion that was driven in his own heart for this church may come from the sin in his own life. 
Paul describes their generosity with the word grace. He wants the Corinthian church and others, right, including us in this room tonight, to know that generosity is directly connected. It's rooted in grace. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Paul didn't deserve what God has done for him. You know what it was? It was grace. We don't deserve what God has done for us. You know what it was? It was grace. The church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for grace. I don't know if you remember how Jesus put it in John 3.16, but He put it like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I read a sign the other day that was from God. It was a little statement. You know, John 3.16 was kind of in parentheses. But instead of the verse written out, it just said, I love y'all. It was from God. God's grace is the greatest picture of generosity. Say, Danny, how should I think about my own giving, my own generosity? Well, I think for us, the best perspective, the best picture is God's grace. Those who have experienced God's grace through salvation should be the most generous people on the planet. Matter of fact, Paul later described it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. He'll say it like this. I say this not as a command, talking about their giving and their generosity, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. I think he's referring to God's grace. I certainly think as I read that passage of Scripture that we forget how poor Jesus became for us. I read a description of this this week. It, it went like this. Talking about Jesus, He was born in a borrowed stable. When He wanted to feed the hungry multitudes, He had to borrow a little boy's lunch. When He wanted to silence His critics, He had to borrow a penny. When He wanted to teach the great crowds that pressed around Him, He had to borrow Peter's boat to prevent Himself from being pressed into the lake. When He wanted to fulfill an ancient prophecy and ride in triumph into Jerusalem, He had to borrow a donkey. He had to borrow an upper room. When He needed a burial place, He had to borrow a rich man's tomb. He even died upon another man's cross. Such was the poverty of Jesus. Yet do we really know how poor he became? Listen to how this author continues. He said, to measure the depth of his poverty, we have to measure the sum total of the sin liability of every man, woman, boy, girl, and baby ever born or to be born upon the earth. For that was the debt, the total liability which he assumed. Our finite minds cannot reckon up the enormous sum total of a world's entire sin. We know he became poor, but do we know how poor he really became? How about this? Do we know how rich we became? 
Obviously, Jesus stepped out of glory into poverty so that we could become rich. Do we realize what that poverty looked like for Jesus? What He left in order to come here? But, because He came here in poverty, it was so that we could become rich. Do we know how rich we have become? Paul would say it like this to the church in Ephesus, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He would continue to the church at Ephesus. He would write, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Or later, he would write this to the Corinthian church. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. You remember the phrase from the old hymn, A Child of the King? Let me remind you of this part of the song. It says, My Father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in His hands. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full, he has riches untold. A generous heart, a giving heart, might be the characteristic of Christians that most reflects God. Generosity. Giving. Think about it like this. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy companionship, but not friends. Money can buy entertainment, but not happiness. Money can buy food, but not an appetite. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a crucifix, but not a savior. Money can buy the good life, but not eternal life. Friends, generosity is not a reflection of the amount of money we have. It is a reflection of God's grace in our lives. You say, Danny, why do we give? (laughs) Because God has given so much to us. Wow, right? Let me show you another principle that Paul teaches us about giving and generosity. Here's here's the second one. Our current situation shouldn't change our commitment to generosity. Certainly is a reflection of God's grace to us, but also our current situation shouldn't change our commitment to generosity. Paul continues to write to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, he's talking about the church in Macedonia, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I mean, try to to reconcile that in your mind. Their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It doesn't even make sense. They barely had anything at all, yet they gave more than anyone. For they gave, listen to this, for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means. I think it's very interesting to see the generosity of the churches in Macedonia even though their own situation wasn't good. 
Think about it. They had plenty of needs for themselves. However, they were still generous with what they didn't even have. The church in Macedonia couldn't give what the church in Corinth could. It couldn't give what other churches could give. In fact, they were in severe test of affliction, right? They were pressed. They were pressured. They were punished. Yet their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. I think it's important for us to understand that whether we are in a season of plenty or in a season of what Paul would call affliction, we should still have a commitment to generosity. Maybe one of the most clear stories on this truth comes in Mark chapter 12. It says he sat down opposite the treasury, talking about Jesus, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which together make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How often have we thought that we would be more generous if we were in a better situation? Anybody ever thought that before? I have. God, if you'll give me more, bless me more. If I could just be at this point in my life, I will give more. I'll be more generous. How often have we thought that we would give to God if we had as much as someone else? Anybody ever thought that before? Hey, look, if I was Elon Musk, it'd be a little different, right? God, I would take care of whatever it is you want to do. Yet Paul, as Jesus did, makes it clear that generosity isn't based on our situation. Think about it like this. If you're not generous with a little, why would you be generous with a lot? I had a friend one time talk about, he's a pastor friend of mine, he talked about moving to a different church, a new location. He's kind of fed up with the church he was at, the people were hard to deal with, he you know, was struggling in his marriage, struggling in his, in his personal life, his commitment to God was lower, he was, he was attributing all of it to the context he was in, the place he was at, the people he was around, he was contributing it to all that. And I'll never forget looking at him and saying, hey man, listen, I'm with you. I know things are tough. It's not always easy. You know, our, our, our life, this world, like everybody's got these kind of pressures. But I looked at him and I said, hey man, you know what's going to happen though when you move 500 miles across the country? You're bringing that same guy with you when you get there. Hey, you know what happens when you wake up tomorrow and you look in the mirror again? The biggest problem you have is still looking straight across from you. Listen, if you're not willing to give and be generous to God with what you have now, what do you think a different situation is going to change that? Sometimes you may be able to give more because God has given more to you. Other times you may not, but you should still give out of what you have regardless of the situation. Paul makes this even more clear a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 12 through 14. Here's what he reminds them in the same context. For if the readiness is there, It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, God's asking you to give right now. He's not asking about what you can give 20 years from now, right? How can you be generous today? They say, Danny, why are you talking about money? Or or, I'm not just talking about money. Everything you have is His. 
Not 50 years from now. That's his too. I'm talking about today. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about later. I'm talking about right now. Not according to what you hope to have, but what you actually have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. He's saying times will be different. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes you're given to someone's needs, sometimes someone's given to yours. My testimony to that today. Multiple people working at my house to help me get my hot water heater fixed. Couldn't do it on my own. I'm very thankful for the giftings that God has put in people's lives. Or my family would still be wondering how they're going to use the bathroom or take a shower tonight. But we got it fixed. And I thought to myself, it's not always about us being the ones giving for another need. There are seasons where people give for ours. The question is, if people were as generous in your time of need as you are in theirs, how much can you count on others? I know it stings a little bit, but it's true, right? Let me show you a third one because I've got six and I need to hurry up. Number three, third principle I feel like Paul brings out is that generosity is less about amounts and more about attitude. It's less about amounts and more about attitude. He goes on, verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Then he says, look at this, of their own accord, begging us. This is an interesting phrase. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The Corinthians had made a promise to give what was needed to care for the church in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we've already read it. It was in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in the very beginning of the chapter. Paul reminds them of this commitment a little bit later in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what he wrote. And in this matter, talking about the gift they were to give or they had promised to give, in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. He mentions it again in 2 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2. He says, uh, now I'm writing to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. This is an interesting moment to me, because... They're bragging, Paul bragging about the promise that the church of Corinth made to give to the church in Jerusalem has now stirred Macedonia and others to also want to give even out of their poverty, right? And Paul's like, your boasting, your amount, it, it was so great, it was, it was such to talk about that others are being motivated by your sacrifice. It seems as though their willingness to give is what has motivated others to do so as well. That's why the churches in Macedonia, though they had little, didn't want to miss out on the opportunity to partner with others for the sake of the gospel. 
They heard about the Corinthian church, their willingness to give, and wanted to do their part as well. This is why Paul writes, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. No one had to pressure them. No one. No one had to pressure the church in Macedonia. No one had to pressure them to give or to be generous, and no one was going to outdo them either. wasn't going to happen. They were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part. The word for favor, same word used earlier for the word grace. Literally same word. They had experienced the grace of God and were overflowing with it to the point of not wanting to lose the opportunity to pass that grace forward. If God lavished such grace on them, why wouldn't they also do the same for others? However, Though they didn't have the resources and the finances of the Corinthian church, they still wanted to do what they could. This is the difference in attitude over amount. They begged for the chance to simply be a part of the favor, of the grace that would be extended to Jerusalem and to others. I love how Paul describes this attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here's how he describes it. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's not a a set amount to our giving or our generosity. Generosity, giving, it it isn't about amounts, it's about attitude. Paul reminds us they gave of their own accord. The word accord means self-choice or by one's own choice. It was their decision as it is ours. So let me ask you a couple questions about your generosity. What have you and God agreed on giving? Have you asked him about what you should give? It's a good starting point, by the way. What is your attitude toward what God has given you and what you should do with what he's given you? Do you realize you are simply a steward of all that you have and it really belongs to God anyway? I love the word Paul uses for cheerful. The word in Greek is literally this. Hilaros. The idea of cheerful is where we get our word for hilarious. That's the type of attitude they had. That's the kind of joy in giving that Paul's wanting them to understand. This is the attitude. Not that I have to give or should give, right? Not under compulsion. But I get to join in with God to accomplish His mission for saving the world. I get to join in with Him to do ministry across the globe. I think this is what Paul meant when he wrote, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Their giving was easy because they had given themselves already. One commentator said this, said, because they had first given themselves to the Lord in response to the grace of salvation received from Him, the decision to give sacrificially to the cause of supporting the suffering believers in Jerusalem came easily. 
When we give ourselves without reluctance or reservation to the Lord, then giving our time, talents, or treasures comes naturally. On the other hand, when we find ourselves tight-fisted and unwilling to give freely, the problem runs deeper than the balance in our checking account or our cash flow. The problem of selfishness is not financial, but spiritual. I find that most people, at least those who have grown up in church, typically hold to giving the tithe or a tenth of their first fruits. Nothing wrong with this type of thinking, by the way. If that's you and how you practice your generosity, absolutely fine. It is certainly a biblical topic. However, most people use that as a basis for giving. When I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that it should be. Now, I want to explain myself because I want to give you a breakdown if you're thinking about the Old Testament tithe. You ready? You may not have ever thought about this or read this or processed it, but listen to this. Under the Old Testament economy, a great deal of giving to the maintenance of the Lord's work was covered by legislation. It was literally law for them. The services of the temple and tabernacle, the maintenance of priests and Levites, the periodic public animal sacrifices were all paid for out of levies mandated by the law. Before the Old Testament, believer gave any free will offerings, any sacrificial offering. He was required under the law to give 10% to the support of the Levitical service. There's the tithe, right? Well, further, he was also required 10% for the maintenance of the temple feasts. There's 20%, by the way. And still, a further 10% every third year to replenish a fund for the poor. This is all Old Testament teaching of how the law required a family to give yearly. Now listen, I'm not a mathematician, or as I like to say, a math magician. If you were to break this down, according to Old Testament law, we should be giving about 23.3% of our annual income to God, bare minimum. Seems to be a little more than 10%. You agree? You say, Danny, you're meddling up in my business. I know. <laughs> I just want you to understand. The principle of a tithe, biblical, but the principle of a tithe only being 10%, I don't think you're reading all the context of how the Old Testament worked according to the law. But listen, I want to make it a little bit worse. Can you bear with me for a moment? The New Testament, though Jesus mentions tithing once in Matthew 23, 23, yet it doesn't have to do with cash money, seems to leave offerings and giving, because he doesn't calculate it that way, seems to leave the thought of offerings and giving in the hands of each believer as God leads them to give. And typically... <laughs> When Jesus speaks of generosity or the New Testament church speaks of generosity, it's always in the context of giving everything you have to God. It's not just 10%. It's 100. Remember this from Acts chapter 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I don't know if you remember this from the church at Rome, but it's one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It's Romans 12.1. 
Paul wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Can I tell you something, friends? We belong to Him, and all we have is His. Danny, should I not give a tenth anymore? No, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. I believe God requires a whole lot more than 10% of my finances. I believe when I gave my life to Him, I surrendered all. You sang that song before? It may have been a while. I surrendered all. Yeah? Also, I think He's talking about a whole lot more than just finances. I think He's talking about everything we got. So you say, Danny, should I not give a a tenth? Should I give so much more? Well, absolutely you should give so much more, but that's also not the point. The point that Paul is making, and I think it is so important that we never lose sight of 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. If you hate everything else about the book of 2 Corinthians, these are two chapters to hone in for how you live out your days for the kingdom of God forever. You say, why do you say that, Danny? Because I really do believe generosity is one of the best ways we can reflect the image of God to the world. And I really do believe that He wants you on your face spending time with Him and asking Him, God, what do you want me to give? Is it 10%? Is it 20? Is it 50? Is it you fill in the blank? That's for you and God to decide. Friend, have you asked Him what you should be giving to Him? Oh my gracious, we got to hurry. Number four. Let me show you this, this principle. This is a good one, by the way, for those of you who might feel a little discouraged or you think I'm asking for your money. I assure you I am not. I assure you, I believe God will take care of me and my family as I obediently walk after Him, just as you should believe for your family. I'm not asking for your money. I believe God's got all of it. I'm not worried about that. What I am asking is for you to ask Him how you are to be a part of generosity. But the good news is, if you feel like you're not very good at being generous, we can become better at being generous. It's a biblical principle. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Here's what Paul writes in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But, listen to this, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Said, any what act of grace is he talking about? Well, specifically giving to the need in Jerusalem, but I think overall, also specifically, to generosity as a whole. You say, what do you mean? He means we can become better at being generous. Listen, we read 1 Corinthians. You probably remember chapter 12. Paul praises them for the many giftings of their church and specifically how God gifts all of the church. We are His body uniquely designed to accomplish His purposes. We have many gifts, though we're one body. Paul would suggest that one of those gifts is generosity, and you should nurture it, you should seek it, you should be earnest in it, you should excel in this act of generosity. The first church I served in as youth pastor was a smaller church in Laurel, Mississippi. In fact, it was Kayla's home church. It's where we met and how I eventually tricked her into marrying me. Now, there were a lot of things that we could have done better at that church. There were plenty of things that we wished we had compared to other churches. However, one thing I will always remember is how giving that specific church was. 
They had such a sweet spirit of generosity. They would give more money to missions and furthering the kingdom than churches ten times their size. I remember serving in a church of a thousand compared to that church of a hundred, and they gave nothing compared to the missionary efforts that that little bitty church gave. Why? They excelled in generosity. I wonder this. Listen to me, friends. Are we known for generosity? I wonder if you're known personally for generosity. Paul tells the Corinthians and us that we can work on being more generous. We can see that we excel in this act of grace also. We can be more intentional about giving and generosity. There's an old Reader's Digest uh, report that came out. It's been several, several years ago. But the report was an interesting uh, fact that took place in New Jersey. It was a sad fact at that. But when the New Jersey Turnpike Authority wished to alleviate the shortage of small change at the toll booths, here's what they would do. They would go to the churches on Monday morning to exchange paper currency for the Sunday coin collection. Say, Danny, why is that a sad story? Because the bills of the toll booth were greater than the generosity of the church. He would go to exchange it for the simple coins that were given. May that never be us. May that never be me. I want to be known for generosity. May we excel at giving. Let me show you the fifth one. I'm going, I promise. Number five, you can't outgive God, right? This is all throughout Scripture. You can't outgive God. As we know, all we have belongs to God. Listen to these verses. This is Exodus 19.5. All the earth is mine. This is God speaking, by the way. Here's Deuteronomy 10.14. Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Job 41.11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50.10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Read this definition for stewardship this week. It means managing God's treasures in God's way for God's purposes and always for His glory. Is that how we live our lives? Listen, God's not begging you for your finances. He owns everything. It's already His. Here's what He's doing. He's inviting you into the blessing of generosity as He continues to be generous to you. Here's what he writes, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 10. Listen to this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now friends, don't be terrified by these types of verses. I know so many churches and preachers have twisted this type of thinking. This isn't health and wealth, prosperity, gospel junk. This is the Word of God. 
God promises those who are generous for His name and His honor will be taken care of. Now, I'm not saying that you'll get your every dream, but God will certainly supply all you ever need if you obey Him. You can't outgive God. Number six, last one. Generosity is for the good of others and the glory of God. It's a principle we learn. It's simple. Generosity is for the good of others and the glory of God. Notice none of that has to do with you. 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 12, here's what Paul wrote. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Our generosity blesses those in need, but it also points people to Jesus. What more could we ever want from our generosity than to know that it's furthering the kingdom of God? Listen, I was thinking about our recent conversations on Sunday mornings. We've been studying in the book of First uh, Peter, and this past week we discovered Peter's challenge for us to do everything we do with the kingdom of God in mind. You remember some of this? Our friendships should be with the kingdom in mind. The fruits, right? Our actions should be with the kingdom in mind. Our fears, right? Uh, the, the things that terrify us as we stand for Him should be thought of with the kingdom in mind. Our faith with the kingdom in mind. Well, what about our finances with the kingdom in mind? What would happen if we thought about all our resources with the kingdom in mind, with the kingdom impact at the forefront of all that we did? Listen, when the people of Israel were building the tabernacle, their worship center, they were building a place where they would honor God, Moses asked the people to help build it by bringing what they had. You can read about it in Exodus 35, Exodus 36. It's a, it's a pretty unique story, but one of the most awesome moments comes in Exodus chapter 36, verses 6 through 7. I want to read them to you. As a matter of fact, this is an interesting one to write down because it's just kind of cool. Exodus 36, 6 and 7. Here's what happened. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Here's the word that was proclaimed. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained. They were stopped from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now listen, I know this is silly, but wouldn't it be awesome if one Sunday I had to get up and just be like, hey, I know we've been, I know I've asked you to give before because generosity is important. I know it reflects God and it's in the Bible. I know, whatever. Hey, church. Please stop giving because we have too much. That's what happened. The people of God began to be generous with the things of God that they were stewards of. So let me give you a couple of things that I think are important just for you tonight, and we're done. For you, for me, reflect on all that God has blessed you with and allow it to cause you to give thanks back to Him. Just think about it. Take a moment. Tonight, tomorrow, whenever you get a chance to stop and pause, just reflect on all that He's done in His goodness to you and let it bring thanksgiving to your heart. Secondly, rest on the promises of God to those who are generous. God may not bless you with material blessings for your generosity, but He will provide all you need. As Paul put it in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Last one, review. Reflect, rest, review your heart. Examine it and ask God how He wants you to give, how He wants you to be generous in the future. Ask yourself, do I give proportional to what God has given me? 
Ask yourself this, if someone else knew my level of generosity, would I want them to model after me? Have I prayed and asked God what I should be giving to Him? Listen to me, friends. Generosity, in my opinion, most reflects God. That's true. If for God so loved the world, He gave. If that's true, how generous are you?